If you have your Bibles, we are going to be um, covering a large section, and it is a lot, and we're not actually gonna read it all at once. I'm gonna read it as I go through each point, but, but just, um, we are coming to the end of this Olivet Discourse, and we've worked our way through the first three parts, and this week begins kind of the, the closing, this entire section begins a transition towards the close. Uh, we're, we're past the, the confusing parts and the, the interlocking, the temple destroyed and the end of the age and, and trying to figure that out. Now we come to verse 36 of chapter 25. And from thir- verse 36 of chapter 25 on to the end of chapter 25, really, it's all about the second coming. There, there's no discussion about whether it's fulfilled in the destruction of the temple or not. This is all a forward looking to the second coming. And so the discussion is, specifically this morning, is the return of Christ. And what Jesus does, instead of saying, well, here's the day and the time I'm gonna come, he simply assumes two things. First, yes, I'm coming back, but second, there's gonna be a delay. And so those are the two assumptions that, that, that shape his discussion on the end. And this delay is what's gonna take center stage in today's passage. The, the verses that we're gonna read and talk about are a group of parables that all point to the necessity of living in anticipation of the second coming. The the call of today's sermon is to be vigilant, to live lives of of readiness in order to welcome or receive or be ready for the return of Christ. Christ has come, he ascended into heaven, but he is coming again. We live between these comings, between the times. we know what's gonna be in the world between the first and second comings. That's what the, the first part of chapter 24 was. These birth pains, the world is gonna experience these, these wars and rumors of wars until the second coming, but, but here the focus is on how are we to live? And there, there's a quote I'll read again at the end, but I just want, I just want, I want, you, to ha- I want you to think about living between the times because they're connected and, and how we view the first coming shapes how we view the second coming. So listen to this quote that that helps us think about how to live between the times. This perplexity of how to live between the first and second coming is at the heart of the uniqueness of Christianity and how we are to live in this delay. Something absolutely astonishing and wonderful has already happened in the incarnation, and yet something astonishing and wonderful is yet to happen that will complete what Christ began on the earth. Right, and in his second coming. And so we, to live in this delay, we take into account both the backwards look to the first appearing and forward look to the second appearing. How we live is shaped and governed by the cherished past grace of God in his first coming and trusted future grace of God at his second coming. And so we live between the times and, and it's all, our life is shaped by what Christ has done and what Christ will do. And it's, it's one work that will be accomplished between in, in these two comings. And so if you have your Bibles, chapter 24, verse 36, is what we're going to look at first. And actually, before I read, let me, let me just, um, yeah, let me do this. I think it'll be helpful. Let me give you the summary and the breakdown, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. So, we are in the, the, fourth, uh, the, the fourth section or fourth part of this discourse. And again, it's all the preparing of the sun. And so the, the, the outline is simply this. Christians stay ready 
which is verses 36 through 44 of, of chapter 24. So stay ready, point one. Point two, by being faithful, verses 45 through 51 of chapter 24. Third point, by being prepared, verses one through 13 of chapter 25. And then by being productive, verses 14 through 30 of chapter 25. And so one sentence, one sentence summary, you could just take all those points and get the main point, which is that Christians stay ready for the return of Christ by being faithful, by being prepared, and by being productive. And that's worked out in all of these sections. So so if you wanna make those outlines into a sentence, maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not, you have the outline there. Um, but let me, let me pray for us and then, then we will begin and I'll read that, that first point and then we'll, we'll look at it. But let me pray for us as we begin. Uh, Father, we, we trust your word and, and Lord, we long for your return. Uh, we're thankful for what you've done for us in the cross that our sin has been defeated and paid for and we are no longer condemned. The record of debt that stood against us has been paid for that we are reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we, we remember and recognize and rejoice in what Jesus, you have done for us, but we recognize that there's still more to be accomplished. The, the fulfillment of your salvation is not yet realized. And so we long for the day when you will return and all your enemies will be under your feet and we will be with you free from sin with resurrected bodies in fellowship with you, communion with you and one another for all of eternity. And so I pray as we, as we read this passage, would you help us to know how to live between the times? Help us, Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so here's, here's we're gonna work through this. I've, I've got a lot of pages of notes here, so I'm, I'm gonna work through them. Um, so first, Christians stay ready. Verses 36 through 44 of chapter 24. Follow along as I read this first point. We stay ready. So beginning in verse 36, Matthew writes, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so as we look at this first point, verses 36 through 44, the, the shift in the Olivet Discourse is now on the second coming. That day and hour, that, that traces all the way back to the question of the disciples up in, in verse three. And they want to know, well, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And so now he is focused specifically on that day, the return, the second coming. And Jesus says, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the sun. No one knows that day. It is unknown. Now, a few things to point out just here at the beginning. First, when Jesus says no one knows the day or hour, included in that unknownness is month and year. Okay? 
So, so history is filled with people who say, yeah, he says we can't know the day and hour, but here's a book, here's 88 reasons why he's gonna come back in 1988. Right? That, that misses the point. Day and hour means no one knows. So don't try and figure it out. The point isn't to determine exactly when it's gonna happen. The point is to say, no one knows. Day or hour, month or year, decade, century, no one knows. The time of the event is unknown, period. And to highlight the point, Jesus includes the angels of heaven and himself. The day and time, the month and year, the return of the sun is something that no one knows, not even the angels or the son of God. Now, now that's significant. That's, that's, a, that's a powerful statement. And I just wanna take a few minutes to, to unpack that. It's important for us to be able to rightly think about who Jesus was. And it's important for us to be able to answer the question, whether it's from our, our child, who says, how, how does Jesus not know something? Or whether it's the Jehovah's Witness that says, hey, you say Jesus is divine. Well, look at this passage in Matthew chapter 24 where he doesn't know something. How can God not know something? It's, it's a question that we should be able to think rightly about and answer. And so the question is simply, if Jesus was fully God, as, as I believe he was, as the church throughout the ages has believed he was and still is, how did he not know something? How can Jesus, who is the God-man, fully God, fully man, how can he be said not to know the day or hour of the coming of the Son of Man? Right? You, you, you recognize that the weight of that question. If Jesus is God, how can he not know something? One of the divine attributes to be God, a divine attribute is omniscience. And if, if you don't know something, you're not God. That's part of what it means to be God is to be all-knowing and all-powerful and, and all-present. And so if God doesn't know something, that proves a deficiency or a lack in the nature of God. And so the question must be answered. How can Jesus not know something? Now, first thing to say is that Christian orthodoxy, in light of the clear teaching of Scripture, has always affirmed that in the incarnation, in this first coming, the act of, of the Word becoming flesh, think John 1, there was a, a union or a combining of two natures. So, so one person, two natures. That, that's that's a, a short phrase to help think rightly about Jesus. Two natures, one person. The, the divine nature, fully God, the human nature, fully man. So that Jesus is not like us completely. He was born of a virgin. He, he doesn't in, inherit a sinful nature. He was the second person of the Trinity. So these are all related to his divine nature. He is fully God and was born as no one else had ever been born. So he's unlike us. However, Jesus also, in the incarnation, was like us. He was a true human. He had a human mind and a human body. I mean, Jesus got tired. He was asleep on the boat in, on the Sea of Galilee. He, he was going through Samaria and he was tired. He needed a drink of water. He was hungry. He, he wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He was a human person. He was a true human. And so it's one person, Jesus, two natures, divine and human. And in the incarnation, these two natures were joined in one person. It's called, if you want to impress your friends, I heard Pastor Kenny last week gave you some, some lunch words to sound really smart. Well, here's today's lunch word. It's the hypostatic union. <laughs> Say that at lunch. 
But, but that, that's the term that is used to describe this joining of the two natures in one person. Jesus was unlike anyone else that was ever born on this planet because he was fully God and fully man. And his two natures were joined in one person. He's not two people with two natures in one body. No, he's one person. So, so that if we were asked the question, well, who was born in a manger in Bethlehem? Well, Jesus, the son. Well, who in John 1 was with God in the beginning? Well, it was the son. Well, who got tired and had to rest at the well in Samaria? Well, it was the son. Well, who is all powerful? It's the son. All of these things are true of the one person, Jesus, the son of God. One person with two natures. Thus, when Jesus speaks, thinks, wills, and acts, he does so as the eternal son through both natures. So that we can say that the son was born and the son was tired and the son was crucified. The son did not know the hour or day of his return. And in all of these things, he did not know these according to his human nature. All these statements are true of the son according to his human nature. But to emphasize his human nature in this case, his lack of knowing the day and time, in an attempt to deny his divine nature is to misunderstand who he was. The truth is, the the incarnation notwithstanding, when the word becomes flesh, the divine nature does not cease to exist. The, The divine nature does not somehow take a back seat to his human nature. There's no reason to think that becoming a man taken on flesh required the loss of divinity or deity. So in the words of one historic statement of faith, listen listen how this explains. Words are important, but listen to how this is explained. In the incarnation, two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so when we come to this passage and we ask, well, how could Jesus not know something? Our answer is to say that Jesus, according to his human nature, he didn't know. So so the gospel writers, they have one Jesus. And they say, Jesus did this. And they don't feel the need to say, well, he got tired. That was his human nature that got tired. We need to distinguish. They, They don't distinguish. Jesus says, I am. He doesn't say, well, that's my divine nature. That that's not my human nature. He says, I am because he's one person. And so our answer is to say, yes, Jesus didn't know according to his human nature, of course. That's, he had a human mind, and he grew in wisdom and stature. His human nature included with it a necessary ignorance. So he doesn't come out in Bethlehem talking about the will of his father. He has to learn how to talk because he's, he's a baby. His human nature, he's growing in wisdom and stature, while at the same time, he is the son upholding the universe by the word of his power in a manger. Can you, can you think about that? But his, his human nature included or involved a necessary ignorance, which is an ignorance we should note Jesus was not ignorant of. And so no, Jesus did not know the day or hour of his return. And yes, of course, Jesus knows the day and hour of his return. He's God, of course he knows. Hopefully that answers all of your questions. All of that was free of charge because none of that's the point of verse 36. The point that Jesus makes in verse 36 is that the day of his return is unknown. And after making that point, he gives an analogy to further emphasize his point. So look there at verse 37. For as were 
the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, so we're going back to Genesis, the account of the flood, before the flood, all the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until all that stuff stopped. Noah entered the ark and they were unaware of what was happening until the flood came and swept them away. So, he says, will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the comparison is between the days of Noah and the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And we have to be careful to recognize the the similarity that Jesus is pointing out and the similarity that Jesus isn't pointing out. So the point of the similarity is not who will be raptured. Hear that? That That has no relevance in this passage. That's not the point. In fact, if if the point were to identify those raptured and those left behind, it'd actually teach a rapture of the unrighteous. So some people who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture say, well, look right here, there's two people there, one's gone, one's one's left. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, car will be unmanned in the event of the rapture. And people look at this passage and say, look, but he's not talking about who is left behind and who's raptured, that's not the point. But if that was the point, The days of Noah, those who are raptured, those who are swept away were the unrighteous who are swept away in judgment. And so if this teaches the rapture, it's actually the rapture of the unrighteous in judgment. But that's not the point. The point of the analogy is to, to say, look at what was happening in the days of Noah. Verse 38 and 39, what was going on? Like everything was normal. Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Going to work, going to baseball games doing whatever, like normal life was carrying on. In the years and months and days and hours leading up to the flood, nothing was different. Life was moving on just as it always had. The massive flood was about to be unleashed on sinful humanity. God was about to destroy the earth and everything on it, and no one had any clue. In fact, the continuation of normalcy lulled them all to sleep in the sense that nothing out of the ordinary was taking place. And so even if Noah is saying, hey, something's coming, he's a fool. What are you talking about, a flood? Look look around, does this look like a world that's about to be destroyed? Of course not. One commentator asked, well, who except the chosen eight understood in Noah's day that doom was approaching? They were too busy getting married, having children, buying a house in the suburbs, and the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware, they didn't know the day of the flood until, until when, what does verse 39 say? Until the flood came and swept them all away. At which point, what are you gonna do? These verses constitute an exhortation to vigilance precisely because the hour is unknown. And it's the unknownness of the hour that's stressed. That's what helps make sense of the following two illustrations as he continues, verse 40 and 41. There's two men, one's taken, one's left. There's two women, one's taken, one's left. Therefore, verse 42, stay awake for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. The point again, it's not who's taken, who's left behind. The point is whether you're in the field or in the grinding of the meal, in neither case did the pair of individuals know that sudden separation was coming. If they had known something was gonna happen, they wouldn't have been going about their day as normal. I think that's the point. They wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been in the field or at the grinding mill. They would have been on guard. They'd have been ready. You don't know the exact day or time, Jesus says, of the coming of the Son, but you know he will return, so you live ready. You stay awake. Verse 42, stay awake. You see, it's one thing not to know the Son's coming back at all, at which point the call to stay awake is pointless, 
But it's another thing to know he is coming back, but not to know exactly when he's coming back. In that case, you're certain he's coming back, but you don't know the day or time. Well, the only thing to do is to stay ready, to stay awake, so that you're not caught off guard. Verse 43 and 44, look how this, this final point is concluded. Again, the, the, the emphasis is being ready. Verse 43, know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The emphasis falls consistently throughout these verses on the fact that the time of that coming is not revealed and that it will come when least expected. There'll be no sign in the sense of a prior warning. Most will be caught unaware, but the disciples, I mean, Jesus is telling his disciples, stay ready. You don't know when it's gonna come, so stay ready. He's preparing his disciples because there won't be a sign, just a, a call to be ready. And he wants to convey this point strongly, so strongly that Jesus compares himself to a thief or a robber, which one commentator pointed out I thought was, was pretty interesting. He said, this saying must be original to Jesus because no one else would dare compare the son of God to a thief. Like if you're a disciple saying, well, how, how can I teach this point? Well, let, let's compare the son of God to a thief. No, no one would dare say that, but Jesus himself says, I want you to know this so clearly, I'm gonna compare myself to a thief. And it's to convey, convey the point that if robbers told you when they were gonna strike, they would find the house dweller ready and waiting. So too, the son of man will give no sign or warning of his coming. He will come and that will be that. So the call for the Christian is not to try and figure out when he's coming, not to write books about the day and hour, month and year of his coming, but simply to be ready. In fact, the only thing for the Christian to do as we eagerly await the return is to be ready, to live in a constant state of readiness. And so the issue Jesus seems to be combating is the idea of this, this delay, this between time, this extended period, and, and imagine the first disciples soon after he ascends and the, the church begins to explode in Acts. There's probably on the forefront, he's coming back. We, we gotta keep going. We gotta be ready. We gotta be at work. But, but as the years and the decades and the centuries continue, the urgency is lost. Well, may, maybe he was wrong. He, he's not coming back anytime soon. It really doesn't matter if I'm ready or not. And so, so the, the, the urgency is because to neglect a readiness it will be a, being lulled to sleep and to miss it completely. The call to stay awake is, is meant to urge against a spiritual stupor, whether it's sleep or drunkenness, however it's described, that would leave you blind to all the signs of danger and would lead to a sudden unexpected judgment, which, which then begs the question, well, how? How are we as followers of Christ to be ready? And that answer comes at least in part in the next section, verses 45 through 51. Christians stay ready or stay awake, notice, by being faithful. Look at this next section, follow along as I read, beginning verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed 
and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he, he just said, hey, be ready. There's not gonna be a sign of my coming. He now gives them a power, powerful parable of what being ready actually looks like, a, a practical parable of what he means when he says be ready. You stay ready, you're ready by being faithful. Now, I mean, that's that opening question, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Hey, I'm leaving, guys. There's gonna be a delay. Well, who's the faithful and wise servant? Who, who gives food to the servants at a proper time over the household? And his point is, here's how your faithful wise. You do what you've been told to do in my absence. Jesus is going away. There's gonna be delay. The, the returns, his return's not gonna be preceded by a sign or a warning. So they are simply to stay ready by doing what they are expected to do. The faithful servant has no reason to be caught off guard by the return of the master. Because the faithful servant has nothing to fear. If you're doing what the master has said, when he comes back, you welcome him. You have nothing to be ashamed of or to hide. But if you think, well, he's away, I don't have to do what he told me to do, well, then when he returns, you have, you have trouble. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Implication for the disciples and for us is that the delay doesn't change our responsibility. Faithfulness is expected. Faithfulness is required no matter how long the delay persists. The danger for those who live between the times is to allow the delay to lead to stupor and sleep and unfaithfulness and neglect. For the delay, the danger is for the delay to deceive the servant into thinking the master isn't coming back. And that servant, Jesus says, is in grave danger. Look at verse 48. This is the servant who, who doesn't think the master's coming back and who's living as though the master will never come back. The wicked servant, not the wise, the wicked says the master's delayed and he begins to beat his servants and eat and drink with the drunkards. And that servant, the wicked servant, will meet the return of the master with great peril. He won't know, he won't expect, and he'll be cut into pieces and thrown in with the hypocrites in a place of weeping, gnashing, and teeth, which is, which is a place of permanent judgment. That, that's Jesus talking about hell. We're to stay ready and faithful and remain faithful because the alternative is judgment. I mean, I think, that, I think that's that. The, the servant either is ready when the, return, when the master returns or he isn't. And Jesus doesn't mince his words when describing the fate of the wicked servant. He will be put in the place of the hypocrites, which we've heard a lot about the hypocrites in chapter 23. Jesus had harsh words for them. The time of delay between the first and second coming is only to be occupied by faithfulness. We stay ready by being faithful. Imagine, if you will, the person who says they're eager and ready for the return of Christ while neglecting the clear instructions of Christ. What could the wicked servant have said to justify his actions? When he's coming, he's drunk with the drunkards and he's beat all the other servants and he's neglected clearly what he was told to do. What's he gonna say? Well, I didn't think you'd be back soon. 
I was gonna get everything in order when, when, I, when I heard you pulling in the driveway. If only I'd have known that, that you, you were only in Williamsburg and it was only gonna be a little bit longer. Then, then, I, then I would have done what you said, right? Those are no excuses. You're either faithful or you're not. And Jesus tells this parable to remove any and every excuse for unfaithfulness. We stay ready by being faithful. Unfaithful servant, like the hypocrites in chapter 23, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They occupied a position of authority and they did not do what those in authority were designed or designated to do. They had received their position from their master but decided to disobey. And so Christians stay ready by being faithful. But that's not all. Let's look thirdly, verses one through 13 of chapter 25. Following as I read. Then, again, he's talking about the, the coming of the Son of Man, That's, this is all connected. That's what we're doing, them all in one servant, sermon. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins, 10 young women who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were, were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish, the five foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy your own oil, buy for yourselves. And while the foolish were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready, the five wise virgins, went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other, the, the foolish, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so here again, the point, Christians stay ready for the return of Christ by being prepared Prepare, there's, there's 10 women, there's five wise and five foolish. Again, the language is similar to what was before. The, the wise and faithful servant and then the wicked or the foolish. And whether they were wise or foolish was determined by if they were prepared, how they acted during the delay. I mean, during this time, the, the, the final seven day stretch of a marriage process, there's the betrothal and a long period of betrothal, then there's this week long process but, but this, this final feast would, would begin by the, the groom proceeding from his house, his parents' house, to the house of the bride. And, and the bride and her bridesmaid would, would go out to meet him, and then they would process to the wedding feast, which would be the start of the great celebration. So it's a, a, a symbolic procession that marked the beginning of the wedding feast. And Jesus tells this parable, and it's a really simple parable. People often will try and pinpoint, well, who, why isn't this person there? What does this mean? And that, his point isn't any of that. I mean, some people say, well, look, the sleep, they all fell asleep. What does that mean? Well, sleep, there's nothing to be taken from them falling asleep. They all fell asleep. It's neither good or bad. They all fell asleep. The point is, when the time came, when the bridegroom returned, when he came, some were ready and some weren't. That's the point. The wise virgins had plenty of oil. The delay didn't hinder their ability because they were prepared. They're prepared. 
when, when the midnight cry comes, they all wake up and they all get ready to go and it's dark and they have these lamps or these torches. And, and five of them say, we have plenty, so we're gonna light our lamps and we're gonna go. Our lamps will get us out and we can then usher in the bridegroom to the feast. But the others, they weren't prepared. The delay was unexpected, so they didn't know and they weren't prepared. And it cost them everything. They weren't ready. They thought they were. They appeared to be ready. But, but when the delay came, when the midnight cry reached their ears, it was too late. They were not prepared, like in the days of Noah. They went to try and get it taken care of, and it was too late. They go and get their oil, and they get to the feast, and they refused entry. They were not prepared. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The theme continues to be reiterated. The delay in the second coming is to be marked by alertness, by vigilance, by readiness, so as not to be caught off guard. I'll say more about that in terms of application, but, but look finally, that last point, verses 14 through 30. Christians stay awake by being productive. For it'll be like a man going on a journey. So it, again, the, the return, the second coming, will be like a man going on a journey. This man going on a journey, he called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So he has three servants. To the one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. To another, he gave one talent. And to each, he gave according to his ability. That is, according to the servant's ability. And then he went away. And so the servant who had received five talents went at once, and he traded with them, with the five talents, and he made five talents more. So also he, he who had the two talents made two more talents. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, a long delay, what happens? The master of those servants comes and he settled his accounts with them. Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents, he came forward bringing five additional talents. So he has 10 total saying, master, you delivered to me five. Here, I've made five more. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Second servant, also one who had been given two talents, came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents here, or you received two talents here. I've made two talents more. His master said to him, identical language, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, he, all, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, he doesn't say, hey, here's what I did with what you gave me. He says, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. You then ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And in my coming, I should have at least received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the first servant who has 10 talents. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
powerful, powerful parable. The point, Christians stay ready for Christ's return by being productive, by making use of this delay. The, the final parable, it fleshes out what it's like or what the waiting is to be like, what's to occupy us during the delay. And it's not a passive waiting. It's not like when you're in the waiting room at the, at the doctor's office or the dentist, we're just counting down the seconds, like when can I go back? Let me, let me read these magazines that I have no interest in. Let me watch these infomercials or let me mindlessly scroll my phone. That's passive waiting. I just wanna, I just wanna get to the event. That's not what the waiting in between the sec, first and second coming of Jesus is to be like. It's not passive. It's, it's, a, it's a responsible activity that's to fill the time. It's a productivity, an action, a doing. And again, there's no need to delve deep into the details of this parable because the point is very clear. Right, the the three servants were were given talents, they were given money to do something with. The point is what they did with what they were entrusted. So five talents, two talents, one talent. I thought it was interesting, one talent, I've often thought of it as a quarter or maybe a, a dollar piece, but, but the calculations, and it, and it continues to rise higher because of economic crisis right now, but, but one commentator figured that one talent was equal to $800,000 in today's money. That's one talent. That's a significant entrusting of his resources to his servant, and so, so you have this master who's giving, I mean, his entire fortune to these servants. And, and he's going away and he's, he's entrusting them to, to make, make profit off of what he's given them. And he's abundantly blessed them and giving them all that they could ever want. And, and it doesn't matter that one is five and one is two and one is one. He's given according to their ability. So he gives them what he knows that they can responsibly handle. And it's not that the five talent is better than the two talent. The master knows the servants. He says, I'm gonna give you this because I know according to your ability, you can, you can make use of this. And so he does that with all of them. But the one who received one does not receive the commendation of well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not said, I, you've been faithful. Here, take more, enter into the joy of the master. That's not how he's received. Instead, he comes with, with nothing to show but what he was given. He didn't, he wasn't productive. He didn't do anything. He was passive. He hid the money and forgot about it. He did nothing with it. He figured, and this is his thinking, this is how he justifies his inaction. If I make a profit, I don't get any of it because you're just a, a bad master. You're just a selfish, mean master. So if I made, whatever I made, you're just gonna keep, which we see the, the, the five town who gave 10 appeared to be able to keep it because he actually also got the one talent, so he was wrong on that, it seems, but he says, I didn't do it because you're harsh, so whatever I made, I wouldn't get, get, and because you're harsh and mean, if I tried to make it work and it, it didn't produce, well, then you're gonna treat me harshly. So, so I'm, I'm not gonna do either because I'm in a no-win situation. That's how he's justifying his inaction. And the master, you wicked and slothful servant, if what you say, I don't think the, the, I don't think the master agrees with his, his judgment concerning his character, but he says, even if that were true, you could have at least taken it to a bank and, and had it interest. You could have done something, and he didn't. And so he says, take what's given to him and, and give it to the five talent. 
And he ends up receiving the harsh judgment that he was afraid of receiving because he did nothing. The third servant didn't know his master. Just like the five foolish virgins didn't know the Lord of the wedding feast. I do not know you. Get away. Cast him out. And so the point of all these verses is is living in this delay. And Christians stay ready for the return of Christ by being faithful, by being prepared, and by being productive. And so what does it look like? What does being faithful, prepared, productive actually look like? I think first, we recognize that we are living between the times. We, We simply recognize that. Jesus is away. And one temptation is to view this delay as evidence of God's failure to keep his promise, or he's slow, Peter would say. And we may be tempted to say, well, Jesus probably isn't coming back, or at least not anytime soon. It doesn't really matter how I live. As long as I just put my faith in him, I'll be good. I'll just check the box and I'll get there. Well, that's not how Christians live between the times. The delay does not lessen our faithfulness. We don't live carelessly as if the parents are away. The concern of the, the absence of Christ. So all, every New Testament passage that focuses on the return of Christ is a passage that highlights the moral and ethical responsibilities of Christians. We live a certain way because he's coming back. That's a constant call. So we be ready. We, we live a certain way. But he's delayed. He's coming back, but he's delayed. So, so how do we stay ready? Here's, here, here's the point. I think here's the point. What is presupposed in this call to stay ready is simply an enduring faith, a constant communion with the Lord Christ, a walking in the Spirit, and constant or consistent patterns of obedience that, that develop mature men and women in Christ. These are those who are prepared for the Lord when he returns. It's those who, who are walking faithfully with the Lord, doing the normal things that Christians have always done throughout the ages. Which is, which is motivated all of it by holding fast to Christ. You're ready by loving Christ. That's, that's simply, that's how you're ready. How are you faithful? How are you prepared? How are you productive? You love Christ and hold fast to him by faith. If you know Christ to be the, the lamb who was slain, who is per given you, procured forgiveness of sins and welcomed you into his family, if that's the Christ that you're holding fast to, when he returns, you're ready because you can't wait to see him. Your life is is due to him. All glory is due to him. And so when you see him, of course you're gonna be faithful and prepared and ready. You're not caught off guard. You're caught off guard when you say, I love you, but my life says everything opposite. Then, Then you're caught off guard. You'll be ready by holding fast to Christ. We we stay ready by a persevering faith. We stay ready by loving Christ, constantly, intentionally loving Christ, and that is how we stay ready. We're faithful and wise by doing what he commands, to, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as he said a few chapters earlier, and love our neighbor as ourself. We're faithful by, by obeying the commands of the Sermon on the Mount, to, to pursue a righteousness that's inside out, not external only. But, but we care about a righteousness from the heart so that our hearts are pure. And we aim to please him with our thoughts 
and not just our actions. We're faithful and wise by, by taking up our cross and following him. We don't get lulled to sleep by his absence. And so we're prepared, we're faithful, we know he's coming back. We eagerly await his return. And, we, and I mean, very simply, we use our resources, we use our time and our gifts to, to maximize this delay. We, he is coming back, and as we'll see next week, when he returns, there'll be judgment and that's it. And so in his delay, even Peter would say he, he's, he's not slow, but he's patient, longing for all to come to repentance. And so we are productive in, in using our gifts for the spread of the gospel, for the, 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 the fame of his name. We want others to be part of the kingdom. And so we are productive by using what we have for the short time that we have. And whether he comes back before we die or not, our window is limited. When you close your eyes in death, you'll no longer be able to be productive. But you can now. I, I don't care how old you are. If you're in your 80s, you still have time to be productive. Don't say, well, I serve. Now, not, none of you say this, but don't say, I don't have to do anything anymore because I did my duty. Praise God that you've done your duty. But your duty's not done until you're with him or until he's come back. We are, we are productive because we know the day is coming when he returns. It'll be a day of great rejoicing for his people, but it'll be a, a day of mourning and wailing for his enemies. And you know some of his enemies, and I know some of his enemies. So, so we, we have time to use what we have for our master's sake. If you're, if you're not a Christian here, you should know that, that the Lord is coming back. And, and the, the graphic imagery of being cut into pieces and, and thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's, it's gonna be worse than that. But the gospel says that though you're a sinful man, though you're a sinful woman, though you've rebelled against your creator, though you deserve that judgment and worse, though you deserve that, the one speaking the words of this pay in, in this, this, these texts, these passages, is the one who was gonna go to the cross a few days later and was gonna die a death in the place of sinful men and women like you and like me so that the father could look on sinful people and say, you are forgiven because of what the son has done. And so those who are in the son, those who have put their faith in Jesus, have turned from sin and put faith in Jesus we have hope and the return of Christ is something we eagerly await. And, and we all want all of you to eagerly await the second coming because of the joy that he will bring with him for you. But until you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you have no reason to rejoice and anticipate his second coming. You have only dread and fear. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so friend, I would urge you, we would urge you to put your faith in Jesus. Young, old, rich, poor, skinny, fat, doesn't matter. Whoever you are. Let me, let me pray as we close and then we'll sing in response.